Before we start today, I want to give a huge thank you to the Academic Life in EM blog run by Michelle Lynn at alium.com. She and Nikita Joshi put together an Alium Awards, and I was so excited and humbled that Gemcast won the Best New Blogger Podcast Award for this year. So thank you all so much at Alium, and thanks to the listeners, those of you who listen and send me feedback and ideas. I really appreciate it. As always, you can find the podcast on gemcast.com and you can connect on twitter the handle is at gem podcast let's dive in Today, I have a very special guest who's going to be talking with me about his area of expertise, which is PEs and venous thromboembolism. So for the first time on GEMCAST, welcome to Jeff Klein. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here on a beautiful day in Chapel Hill. Today, we're going to talk mainly about PEs. And I was curious, what is the age distribution of patients who get PEs? Is this mainly a problem of middle-aged adults or older adults? What does that look like? From a population standpoint, if you look at the plot of incidence, meaning the number of people per thousand that get PE on the y-axis plotted across age, you see a line that's near zero until you get to around 45 years of age. And then there's a sharp upswing, kind of a geometric increase that goes up the older we get. So sort of the bummer is when you're perk positive, like I am, you start to have an increased population risk. Um, it can go as high as somewhere around five per thousand per year at age 70. Now, let's look at a different database, and that's the NEDS database. That's the National Emergency Department sample that's put out by AHRQ that looks at 27 million ED visits every year. has been out for about 12 years now. And if you look at the rate of PE diagnosis as a function of age, it goes up until about age 75, and then it drops off. It goes down. And part of the reason for that is probably that when patients start getting very old, we quit working them up for PE, and we're probably actually missing PE diagnoses. Now, whether that's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, I don't know. But that's uh, some pretty strong evidence that it's not that the PEs are going away. It's the fact we're not working them up. I guess it's hard to tell, should we be working them up more? It's hard to know the outcome since that diagnosis wasn't made. Yeah, and then we're going to get into an ethical discussion, mm. probably something that your listeners are way better at and prepared to answer than I am. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I had a 90-year-old that came through the ED that was uh, demented to the point where she really only knew her name had shortness of breath, and I purposely wrote in my note, I'm not trying to diagnose pulmonary embolism in this patient because I would not anticoagulate this mm. patient. The hospitalist then scanned her, found PE, put her on a Coumadin, and she ultimately came back with a head bleed to about a week later. And, um, you know, I think you know, a lot of people could have predicted that. I, I certainly don't fault the hospitalist for doing it, but my set of values were I didn't want to know about the PE. Another doctor's set of values were they did. But I think that that's sort of an illustrative example about why we're diagnosing less in older people, because we're making value judgments about what's right for the patient. I think that's interesting. And it can be difficult to not do something, but sometimes that's the right choice. 
Another thing I was interested in is whether the risk factors in older adults are different. So in younger patients, are they more likely to have a PE because of post-op immobilization or oral contraceptives, whereas in older patients, are there a different panel of risk factors? I think what we see are fewer of these episodic thrombophilic slash stressor events that happen in young people like surgery, trauma, limb immobilization, pregnancy, um, taking oral contraceptives in older people. And instead, that trades off more for exacerbations of chronic illness that lead to what's really unrecognized bed immobilization for 48 hours or more, and probably undulations in systemic inflammation, Mm -hmm. which goes way up the older we are inflammation is intrinsically tied to coagulability. So I do think that one thing we'll see in the future is that we will use more inflammatory markers to help us know about thrombosis risk, especially in patients that are, you know, over age 70, 75, to make decisions about anticoagulation to prevent thrombosis or even treat it in the emergency department. And that definitely plays into how we think about diagnosing or approaching these patients because if we have somebody coming in with things that we identify as risk factors, we're more likely to go down that path. Whereas if they have just these more ambiguous or nonspecific risk factors like chronic disease or inflammation, it doesn't necessarily trigger that we need to think about PE. And then I was interested as to whether the presenting signs and symptoms differ, and maybe they don't, in older patients. For example, with STEMIs, older patients are less likely to have chest pain than younger patients. They may just come in with shortness of breath or nausea or vomiting. Are there any similar distinguishing characteristics of the presentation in older or younger patients? I can point to the registry that's done in Switzerland as well as secondary analyses in the United States to say that patients that are older present more nonspecifically, I've heard this before, more likely to have altered mental status. In fact, I published a paper in Academic Emergency Medicine in around 2008 where we looked at the clinical features of patients who came through the ED and then were diagnosed with PE in the, emer- in the hospital setting within 48 hours of being admitted, and then using strict criteria decided they had symptoms of PE in the emergency department. So what were the common denominators there? Uh, older age and having confusion. So altered mm. mental status appears to be part of the thing that fakes us out. And you hear a lot of literature in older folks about recognizing delirium and um, not a lot being done about what we should do to work up delirium, of course, look for infection. But PE causes acute delirium in old people. And it's not necessarily just from the hypoxemia. It probably has to do with this giant inflammatory response and its effect on neurocognitive function. So, you know, if there's a take-home, more altered mental status, more delirium, and more just vague presentations of acute stress in older people than in young people. And what about syncope as a presenting complaint of PE? Is that more common in older adults or less common? Uh, Interesting question. I don't think that I know of a literature to let me answer that in any sort of quantified, you know, with 95% confidence intervals type of ways. Let me draw from multiple registries ranging from the Worcester study to the Emperor to ICAPER. 
um, to what's been collected overseas in the Rieti database, now up to somewhere around uh, 50,000 patients with pulmonary embolism. And if we look at those databases and then stratify them by age, you don't see an increase in syncope in older people. Now, I don't know if that's because they have less syncope or if it's just less detected or maybe older people with PE are more bedridden and less likely to be up walking around when their PE hits. But you, know, you don't really see it as uh, in any large registry or database as more common as a presenting complaint in older people. In fact, um, kind of my personal opinion is it's a little more likely in young people probably because when they get hit with the PE, they're just up and around. Hmm. Interesting. Now let's say we have an older adult and this is qualified as 65 and older and we're thinking they could have a PE. Maybe they have a little delirium or confusion or a little shortness of breath. I know we can't use the PERC rule, the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria in older adults, because they would automatically all be PERC positive for age 50. What about the Wells score in older adults? Does it do as good a job at risk stratifying them? I don't know of any specific literature looking at age distinction. You know, I've certainly applied the Wells criteria to thousands of patients, and I don't recall seeing a signal where it was deteriorated or improved. In, in older folks, it certainly is higher in older people, or they're actually more likely to have an alternative diagnosis mm-hmm. because they have other diseases, but uh, not aware of it deteriorating in terms of its overall accuracy. Mm. I, think I, have to, I have to claim ignorance on that. That was one of the factors I was thinking about is since they do have maybe chronic CHF or COPD, there may be more alternate explanations for their symptoms. And now, in terms of diagnosis, if we have a high enough suspicion that we want to do some testing, but maybe not a very high suspicion that we want to jump straight to CT, let's talk about the D-dimer. A lot has been written recently about this age-adjusted D-dimer, and I know it depends partially on your lab and what assay you're using. And I'm curious what your practice is in terms of the assay that your hospital uses and practically what cutoffs you're using for age-adjusted, if you are. Well, just to put it in historical perspective, uh, at least five years ago, I was going around lecturing saying that I think age-adjusted D-dimer is ready for prime time. I think it still is. <laughs> I'm just tired of talking about it. I mean, Mark Regini published his big paper in JAMA. Um, you know, we got another giant study that came out of the Kaiser system that Adam Sharp has published or will publish soon in a- Annals of Emergency Medicine. You know, you see a little bit of increase in false negative rate that goes from an extraordinarily low number if you use the standard cutoff to uh, just a very low number with the uh, age-adjusted cutoff. And uh, I just, it's by far the right thing to do for population health and for individuals because you scan fewer people and any of the PEs we miss are most likely to be small and subsegmental and not have any hemodynamic compromise and the patients, you're gonna get a second chance at them even if they're older. Um, what do I use is um, you know age times 10 for the standard cutoff of 500 nanograms per ml. The one assay that is FDA cleared that has a different cutoff than that is the hemocil. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing that we have assays that measure the same protein, the same protein using the same methods that have 50% variance in the concentration and mm. that this has been cleared by FDA as okay. 
I have gone to FDA. I have specifically talked to them, made proposals that we approach industry and force them to normalize their D-dimers, much like the INR did to normalize the prothrombin time for warfarin treatment. Basically, the FDA's response, and um, they're great people. They're trying to do the right thing. They say their hands are tied. They cannot tell industry to do this. It's going to be up to industry to normalize their their uh, assay. We published a paper on this in clinical chemistry, and um, this is Zach Kaler and myself, where we looked at the effect of the different thresholds and how it causes so many problems, and we detail how many different assays there are out there and all the different cutoffs. Uh, Hemocil is one that's FDA cleared, has a cutoff of around 240. What I do with that one is just five times the age instead of 10 times the age for the standard cutoff of 500. But we're stuck with it. FDA is not going to fix it, and I don't think industry is going to fix it. You know, I think one of the major, one of the challenges for implementing an age-adjusted D-dimer is not necessarily dissemination and awareness of it. It's having each single hospital has to go through and create a protocol along with their hematologists and their pharmacologists and all these other entities, lab, medicine, department. And I think that is probably one of the barriers to using an age-adjusted D-dimer. I think also you get your test result and you look on there and the pathologist has written that anything above X number, whether it be 240 for the hemocyl or 500 for many of the other cleared assays, and you've got a number above that, and you feel compelled to order the CT scan. But I'm telling you, standard of care allows for an age-adjusted D-dimer, and, and that's going to come out in clinical guidelines. Mm-hmm. And uh, any expert witness that's worth his salt is going to back you up on that. And you're not going to make a mistake that hurts a patient if you age-adjust the D-dimer. If you don't, you're going to CT a lot of people and damage their kidneys and cause increased cost and time and radiation exposure that they don't need. Hmm. That's a great point. Well, let's say we've diagnosed a PE in an older adult. Does the treatment differ at all from younger patients for, say, a small to medium-sized PE? I know you have a setup where you've done this in multiple hospitals where for small, stable, low-risk patients, you can send them home on an oral anticoagulant like rivaroxaban or apixaban. Does this change at all with their age? Well, let's um, talk about a couple of big points. Number one, the older, the more frail, and the more risky the anticoagulation, the greater the benefit of the site-specific monotherapy drugs, such as rivaroxaban and apixaban, is. So the more old, the more frail, the more um, worried you are about fall risk, the more benefit the patient gets from one of those two NOACs, new oral anticoagulants coagulant drugs. So that's the first thing to think about. Um, In terms of reversal agent, it makes no sense based on any logical thing we can point at. Old people are less likely to bleed on a PIX or a rivaroxaban than they are on warfarin, and if they bleed, it is far less likely to be intracranial and more likely to be a minor bleed. Also, with the new reversal agent coming out and, and Nexicant, that will be something that at least emotionally will allow us to know that we can reverse this agent. So that's the first thing is older people benefit more than even young people do from the new oral agents. The second thing is that if you're thinking about denying anticoagulation to an older person because you think they have a fall risk, you're probably overestimating the significance of that. I would 
encourage folks to use more structured bleeding systems like the HasBled score. Go to MDCalc, use it, and use that when you decide whether to anticoagulate or not because it's better than you are at Gestalt mm -hmm. estimating bleed risk in an older person. So there's a lot of, for example, with atrial fibrillation, it's a little off topic, there's a lot of older people out there with AFib running around with a huge stroke risk with a CHADS VASC of 4 or 5, a HasBled score of 1 because they're over age 65, and they're not getting anticoagulated because of implicit judgments by physicians. I think we need to be more structured about bleeding risk. So that's the second thing is I don't think our gestalt is so good at predicting future bleeding risk in older people. I think we impose sort of too much um, opinion about who's going to benefit or not benefit. Jeff mentioned the HasBled score, and I want to jump in and just fill in what that is. Basically, it's a tool that can give you an individual's risk of bleeding on an anticoagulant so that you can help make decisions about the risks and benefits. And this was specifically designed for atrial fibrillation patients, but a lot of it would apply also to patients who are on anticoagulants for other reasons. So the score works if you have, you get a point for each of the following. Hypertension, abnormal renal or liver function, stroke, bleeding, labile INRs, elderly, drugs or alcohol. So that's the, the HASBLED, the HAS. BLED. And the details are hypertension, meaning greater than 160 systolic, impaired renal function, meaning a patient has chronic dialysis, a transplant, or creatinine greater than 2.3, impaired liver function, which is defined as chronic liver disease such as cirrhosis or derangement in your liver labs, such as a bilirubin greater than two times the upper limit of normal or ALT, AST greater than three times the upper limit of normal, etc. A history of stroke, history of bleeding, labile INRs, and that would particularly be somebody who's been labile on Coumadin. Elderly greater than 65, so that's our population that we're talking about here today. Drugs, so that's patients who are already on antiplatelet agents or NSAIDs and then alcohol consumption. And all of those things can affect your risk of bleeding. And this tool is available on the MedCalc app, and it'll give you the annual bleeding risk for a patient based on their score. A score of three or more is considered high risk, and I will also put a reference to the scoring system in the show notes. And then I think the third thing to consider is this. Older people are a lot more likely to have interruptions in their anticoagulation than young people are for procedures or acute illness or because of bleeds. And for that reason, I do think that people with PE, especially if they're a recurrent PE in an older patient, do better at having a temporary IVC filter placed. So that is one population where I do see the filter is oftentimes being almost life-saving for people that go on new oral anticoagulants, especially if they're at risk of a GI bleed or other bleed site, and, you know, and you're worried about a possible break in anticoagulation in the future. Now there you do kind of have to use your judgment together with a uh, structured bleed risk score. So I think there's probably better off a little bit more IVC filter use. I think the patients that are Hestia negative, that are low risk, that are gonna go home with PE and on, um, on a NOAC, they don't need IVC filters. I'm talking about the ones that uh, we're gonna hospitalize, they're more comorbid, more likely to have interruptions in their anticoagulation. And so it would be in the sicker population where they might benefit from an IVC filter at a higher rate than younger people. 
Jeff mentioned something called the Hestia criteria. This is a set of criteria, and I will put a reference in the show notes, that basically tells you whether a patient can be discharged on an oral anticoagulant with a PE. And a lot of it is just common sense, but it's helpful to have these spelled out in criteria that are published. So these are 11 things to which if the answer is yes to any of them, then the patient should not be treated at home. First, are they hemodynamically unstable? Again, common sense, you're not gonna send that patient home. Two, do they require thrombolysis or an embolectomy? Three, do they have active bleeding or are they at high risk for bleeding? And this could be somebody who's had a GI bleed in the last two weeks, a stroke in the last four weeks, or if they've had a recent operation in the last two weeks, a bleeding disorder or thrombocytopenia, or uncontrolled hypertension, which is defined as greater than 180 systolic or 110 diastolic. Number four is, do they require oxygen supply to maintain oxygen saturation greater than 90% for 24 hours? Now, all of our EDs sometimes have long boarding times and wait times, but if you're boarding your patients for more than 24 hours, that's probably a bigger problem. My point is we're probably not going to be able to answer that one in the emergency department, but for example, if they require oxygen supplementation to maintain a SAT of over 93 or 4%, then that might be a red flag. Number five is the pulmonary embolism diagnosed during anticoagulant treatment. So somebody, say, who's already on Xarelto or another anticoagulant who has a PE, they should be treated as inpatients. Number six, are they requiring IV pain medication for greater than 24 hours? Again, that criteria doesn't quite fit with the ED, but for example, if they've required more than two doses of an IV pain medication, then perhaps they are not going to cope at home. Seven, are there other medical or social reasons for treatment in the hospital for more than 24 hours? Eight, if they have a creatinine clearance less than 30. Nine, severe liver impairment, and that's kind of up to the discretion of the physician what that is. Ten, are they pregnant? Eleven, do they have a documented history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? So the way that Jeff described using these criteria are in the ED, if those are negative with the caveats that I mentioned about the 24 hours of care, then the patient can potentially be discharged safely home on an oral anticoagulant. So those are those are three basic things to think about. And the last thing is any older patient who comes off anticoagulation who's had a prior DVT or PE should be on aspirin unless they have a contraindication. So much more aspirin use in people with a history of VTE in older patients. And now when you're considering what to start them on, such as low molecular weight heparin versus, as you're saying, the NOACs have better bleeding risk profiles, does, the, does their age alone make a difference in terms of whether you admit them or send them home and have them follow up on the oral agent? Well, there's an increased bleeding risk uh, the older that you get, especially over age 65. And, um, you know, if you look at uh, any of the bleeding risk scores, older, older, older age increases it. So, um, you know, we're a little more likely to send home younger patients because they can take care of themselves. They're you know, much more able to be mobile and get around. And it's just more scary to send home some octogenarian who lives alone and you're not sure about her, his or her ability to get her medicines. So it's some of these implicit things. But by and large, a lot of older people in our clinic, we have 90-year-olds that live alone that we treat at home and they do just fine. I think that's a big part of geriatric medicine is so much of it is um, 
our common sense and working with the patient and knowing their home situation. There's a big difference though when we start talking about more severe clots compared to the minor ones. And uh, that involves the risk of intracranial bleed, which goes way up in age over 75. So that's a totally different discussion and much more data-driven in terms of who and who should not be getting those advanced therapy based on age. So why don't we talk about that at this point? If you do have somebody with a large PE, say a massive or a large submassive PE, and you're considering IV lytics, how does age play into that decision? Right, so anyone over age 75 who has PE essentially has to tell me he or she wants systemic lytics. Otherwise, anybody that's over 75, I'm trying to take them to the IR suite so we can put a catheter into the clot and give them a milligram per hour of alteplase rather than 100 milligrams over two hours. The head bleed rate risk goes way up above age 75 and the number needed to treat goes up into the hundreds, like 200 mm. range for patients over 75, but those less than age 75, the number needed to treat is more like 40. The number needed to harm is very small in the teens, in the teens when we're above 75. So I've got a saying that lysing a patient uh, over age 80 is like drinking tequila after midnight. <laughs> it uh, seems like a good idea at the time, but it never is. It always <laughs> comes back to haunt you. Let's talk about the bleed risk again, and I just want to be clear that there are six meta-analyses of lytics versus um, placebo that have been published since the large PETHO trial and the top coat study that came out about um, two, two and a half years ago. All six meta-analyses agree that the older you are, the worse your bleed rate, the number of major bleeds as well as the number of head bleeds. So that makes me very unenthusiastic about lysing people with full-dose systemic lytics. That's 100 milligrams of alteplase or tiered-dose tenecteplase in patients over 75. I'm much more enthusiastic about taking the patient up and doing um, catheter-directed therapy or expectant management, watch and wait, oftentimes with a filter. Last thing is, if you're out in the hinterlands and you can't get the patient transferred for interventional radiology, you've got a patient over age 75 showing some episodic hypotension. By the way, any old patient, I don't care what their age are, if they're hypotensive with PE, that defines massive PE, and they need full dose lytics, period. Um, don't be scared of those. We're talking about the intermediate risks, and those are the ones that have normotension, normal blood pressure. If you do think you want to lyse somebody that's got maybe a little episodic hypotension, a shock index, a heart rate greater than their systolic blood pressure persistently, hypoxemia, some delirium, doesn't look good, you know their RV is sick because their, their troponin or BNP is elevated, age is say 80, consider half dose lytics and that would be 50 milligrams of alteplase over two hours. That can be life-saving, and the best we know right now from three randomized trials that have been meta-analyzed by Zhang et al. is that the intracranial bleed rate from those three studies was zero. So whether that's going to translate in your practice, I can't say, but half-dose lytics would be what I would do if I were in a place that I couldn't get a patient transferred for catheter-directed lysis who was over age 75 with one of those more, more bad intermediate-risk PEs. So for small PEs, starting the NOACs and potentially an IVC filter, 
for the submassive but larger PEs, again, avoiding lytics. And then for the massive PEs, ideally you want to do intraarterial lytics. If I did, I hear you right? Yeah, I think okay. you, I think you summarize it. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom. All right. Look forward to uh, any feedback from your listeners. I'm going to try to summarize some of the highlights from what Jeff talked about. So PEs, in whom do they occur? Well, mostly patients as they get older from age 40 and up. And then after about age 75, we see a drop-off, possibly because we're not diagnosing them as much, and that may not necessarily be a bad thing. The risk factors for older adults, they're less likely to be an acute event, like a post-surgical event or immobility acutely, and more likely to be chronic. So from their chronic diseases, chronic inflammation, and chronic immobility. Their presenting symptoms may be similar to younger adults, but they may more often present with altered mental status or delirium. So keep that in the back of your mind when you see somebody with altered mental status and maybe a little dyspnea, rather than jumping to urosepsis, at least think about a PE. Diagnostically, the WELLS criteria probably works pretty well in older adults. And then an age-adjusted D-dimer. There's lots of literature showing that it's beneficial and that you will probably not hurt anyone. Again, it depends on your lab values, and he mentioned some of the different lab assays that exist. If you do diagnose a PE and it is small and the patient has no positive Hestia criteria, then they may benefit from just discharge home on an oral anticoagulant. And now this depends on a lot of factors and you have to make sure you have good follow-up for that patient. But the new oral anticoagulants like apixaban and rivaroxaban have lower risk of head bleeds. And so that's gonna be even more beneficial in older adults who are more prone to head bleeds. And then if you have an intermediate risk PE, so something that is not quite a massive PE with hemodynamic instability or a code, but it's a moderate PE with some vital sign abnormalities, the risk of lytics is very high and the benefit is lower than in younger adults. And that is for systemic IV lytics. Some things that you could consider would be a half dose IV lytics versus VIR to go and do intraarterial slow infusion of lytics. But again, Jeff stressed that the number needed to treat is very high and the number needed to harm is very low. So it's something to be very cautious about and perhaps do in consult with others in your hospital, such as your ICU team. Maybe also work with your interventional radiology team to look at other options. A patient with a massive PEs who has hemodynamic instability or code, again, lytics are still the recommended treatment. So I hope this has been helpful. I know I've learned a lot about the approach to PEs in general from Jeff and then specifically in older adults. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.